And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whichever the case may be on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition, and tonight it's a really, really special edition, as you're going to hear in the next three hours, of the other side of midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn, when certainly on this show, anything can happen. Remember, our new catchphrase is everything everywhere all at once. There's all kinds of stuff to distract us in the so-called mainstream. There's trials, and there's tribulations, and there's union strikes, and there's, you know, politics endlessly. There's a, uh, a national government about to shut down totally, absurdly, needlessly. All that stuff crowding all the news channels. And what we're going to talk about tonight on this show and what we're going to do to enlist our audience as agents of change behind this incredible discovery, which literally we made only in the last couple of weeks. And uh, thank goodness, because it's taken that much time to kind of put together a coherent presentation. What we're going to do tonight, I think, is going to, and if I say it modestly, it's because I kind of mean it, it's going to change history because... What we're going to announce and lay out and show you is so incredibly checkable because nobody has to go to another planet. Nobody has to go to another website. Nobody has to go to another country. Everything we need to verify what we're going to talk about tonight is literally sitting in the United States of America in nitrogen coal vaults under Houston, and has been sitting there for about half a century since Apollo 11 brought back the first samples when the first two men to walk on the moon in the modern era kneel safely to planet Earth, which was in the midsummer of 1969, July 1960. That, by the way, was the same moment that at JPL where I happened to be for the um, uh, landing, um, we encountered something so bizarre because one of the official NASA employees, uh, news manager under, um, uh, I forget who the manager was at this point in time. Anyway, what I found so interesting even back then, and of course I find it doubly and triply, quadruply interesting now with the hindsight of, you know, decades, is that Bristow was squiring a guy dressed in one of those old Western dusters or the kind of uh, long coat that uh, early Model T enthusiasts used to wear because the roads were all dusty and traffic, wheel traffic, you know, cars, you know, uh, uh, Ford's first little cars, they stirred up an awful lot of dust on dusty roads. So you wore this great, big coat, this long coat called a duster. I wonder why. Anyway, so this guy is at JPL being squired around the press room by one of the official NASA employees by way of JPL. Again, his name was Frank Bristow. And he was introducing him to all of the major correspondents for all of the major newspapers, television networks, just not just from the United States, but from literally all over the world. Because this, of course, was the press corps 
2000, give or take, that was covering the incredible landing on the moon and return of the first astronauts, while simultaneously there was an unmanned Mariner mission, Mariner 6 and 7, that were destined to fly by the planet Mars within a few thousand miles just a week or so after the Apollo 11 historic landing. So it was a very, very busy week at JPL, and I'm watching knowing nothing of what I know now. And I'm watching Bristow squire around this guy dressed very, very odd, like something out of the last century, like a cowboy who had kind of wandered in, you know, out of some kind of a time slip. And he's handing everybody in the press room a little packet. And, you know, dutifully, after being patient, I got mine, and I open it up, and it's a little Mylar American flag, meaning the colors are wrong, but they're printed not on white paper or white whatever, but on Mylar, silver Mylar. And it, there's a little write-up, like a, like a one-page, uh, one-sheet. And it basically is claiming there in the NASA press room with thousands of the world press gathered to witness part two of this 1969 summer drama, Land of the Moon, Fly by Mars, that kind of thing. He's handing to all the major press people a, a broadsheet which basically claims that what we're seeing or what we saw on live television from the moon, astronauts walking on the lunar surface in dimly, weirdly, ghostly black and white from a uh, sole television camera set up outside the lunar module by uh, um, Aldrin and, and Armstrong. This broadsheet and this guy with the duster is claiming that we never had gone to the moon, that everything we were seeing was taking place on a soundstage somewhere in Nevada. And for some reason, an official NASA spokesperson was squiring this guy around the press room, introducing him to the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the LA Times, you know, Nippon Television, all the big guys as if it was a serious effort by somebody to basically discombobulate and discredit everything that NASA that afternoon was doing in getting ready for the return of the astronauts in the Pacific and the flyby of Mariner 6 and subsequently a few days later Mariner 7 past the planet Mars. It was bizarre then, it is triply bizarre now, in hindsight, decades later. What was NASA doing? Planting the meme that we, the United States, in fact, never went to the moon. I'll tell you what they were doing. They were planting propaganda. They were planting a story. They were planting a whole way of looking at the moon and looking at the national achievement. And basically, in an era where the concept of fake news hadn't even been voiced yet, because that's decades in the future, they were spreading fake news that someone somewhere in the big nine or big 12, whatever the you know upper ranking of the National Press Corps would have been then, because we only had three networks, remember, they were planting the meme that all of this was pointless because it all was being faked on a soundstage in Nevada. And that meme has been very, very, very hard to kill 
even after decades of overwhelming evidence in the other direction. There is a residuum of people that apparently will believe anything but the truth, particularly if they have to, uh, you know, raise a finger and kind of check things. No one knows how to check things anymore. We don't teach in school the process of figuring out the truth, and thereby will be our detriment. Anyway, tonight what we're going to do is to basically talk about and show you what it is that NASA from the get-go was very carefully preparing the groundwork to cover up. So even if someone across the years and decades stumbled over the truth, stumbled over the evidence, published it on something which back in 1969 was not even envisioned by most people in the culture, in the, uh, in the country, that is the internet, where anybody can kind of post almost anything, at least for a while. Um, that distant day when democracy would rule and the most outrageous and absurd claims would be freely available uh, for you to peruse and examine and think about and cogitate upon and try to decide, is this true? Is this, where's the evidence? Where's the backup? Where's the sourcing, et cetera, et cetera. All of that would come decades in the future as this guy literally was squired around the press room handing out his garbage to every reporter who had his hand out because it was news. Well, it's now 50-some years later, and tonight we're going to show you what it is that NASA has so assiduously worked so hard at so many different levels, including planting the meme that we never did any of this amazing stuff that they've been trying to keep secret for half a century. The idea that, in fact, there are, A, not only ET artifacts on the moon, but as part of their collections, each of the missions, Apollo 11, Apollo 12, 14, 15, 16, and 17, returned a total of almost a thousand pounds of moon rocks and moon dust and moon dirt from the surface of our nearby world till, in fact, it came to pass that it was here on Earth, that it was accessible to everyone who would simply lift a finger and a spark of curiosity in trying to find out the truth. And the reason this is so important and has so many different implications is because once, once you get past remote sensing, once you get past photographs, which of course, you know, in this day and age with AI, nothing is impossible to fake. It just takes time and not much time anymore because you've got commercial versions, uh, chat GBT. There's all kinds of background versions at the cutting edge of, uh, of digital science and uh, algorithms, which can accomplish in seconds what it used to take years to sift through in terms of terabytes of data. All of that is now before us, and it's kind of like a double-edged sword, because on the one hand, it gives us access to extraordinary information. On the other hand, it raises the specter that everything we think is real, everything we look at, as at some level, if not totally, completely made up. In other words, discerning truth from lies has not gotten easier. It's gotten harder. 
And next week, when we do our AI show, our first of many, I'm sure, one of the questions I'm going to ask our expert is, well, there used to be a very interesting movie with uh, Cary Grant about jewel robberies, and I think it was called To Catch a Thief. How do you catch a thief? Well, in that particular movie, which is quite good, you set a thief to catch a thief. You set someone who knows uh, what the game is to catch someone trying to operate the game. Well, it's going to be the same with AI. The problem is that it's not there yet at the democratic level where ordinary citizens can take their favorite AI and set it to try to figure out if a given post or a given image or a given anything is the truth or is a lie. But it's coming, and we're going to talk about that in great detail uh, next Saturday night. In the interim, I want you to all go to the other side of midnight.com. That's our URL. Uh, that's our homepage. Click on that. That will take you to tonight's show for Saturday, September 23rd, 2023. And you will click on tonight's banner, which says, Announcing the Enterprise Mission Avi Loeb Challenge. Click on that. That will take you to the guest page. And under the uh, uh, promo to listen to the show at the bottom of my little peroration there about tonight, Click on my name where it says Fast Links to Items. That will take you to the um, uh, inputs on the other side of Midnight's uh, Radio with Pictures page. And you will see item number one. With all the other news making headlines all over the world, from strikes to trials to politics to disasters to all the stuff out there, one thing that happened this week is probably going to live longer than any other news story. And that is that NASA, uh, under the aegis of the Independent Study Team Report on unified, Unidentified Anomalous Phenomena, they issued their report this week and even held a uh, modest one-hour press conference, including the administrator, former Senator Bill Nelson, as the administrator of NASA, who said as part of the opening discussion of what this study had recommended to the agency that they have indeed set up an um, independent office at NASA headquarters to study anomalous phenomena. Now, by definition, science is, you know, it's, it's anomalous. You study and try to learn a science of a new thing so you can understand how it works and how it impacts the world. So it's almost kind of redundant that NASA would set up an office to study anomalous phenomena. But of course, we know what they're really doing. They're going to be studying UFOs slash UAP, which has changed its name many different times as a way to kind of um, backfill on the bad um, outlines and the bad in, in, you know, intimations and implications of UFOs for many, many decades. What's interesting is that reporters, after they write, you know, UAP, they start writing UFO. So I don't think the name change is going to work. And frankly, I don't think it should because historically, you know, UFOs are the moniker under which this extraordinary continuing anomaly continues to reign. So 
why am I singling out the NASA Unidentified Anomalous Phenomena Report? Because the step, the, the, the two-step process, which was, you know, put in place a year ago, is that NASA would appoint this independent group of 16 or 17 independent scientists, world-class scientists, top of their field from all over the world under a NASA contract, and they would study the information and the data that was provided by the Pentagon and some other sources, and they would then come to a reasoned conclusion as to whether NASA should get involved in UAP slash UFOs. And as Administrator Nelson said many, many times, he wants to take the field from speculation into science. Well, that's a very laudable objective. Now, what's really intriguing is they led off their report by saying that none of the current data indicates an extraterrestrial phenomena, which, of course, is a lie. And even NASA should know better than to try to get away at the get-go with an outright lie, because everybody, of course, following these conversations and following these studies and following the politics knows it's a lie. So why are they playing the game this way? Well, I tried to ask Bassett, and he is hopelessly, and I say that with, uh, with uh, you know, tender care, he is hopelessly mired in the political process of Washington and thinks this is the only way that they can politically proceed. I uh, will disagree, and when he's back on the show, we will have an interesting conversation. Because what you do when you make announcements that fly in the face of everything that people already know in their bones, in their gut, that the government has been lying about extraterrestrial phenomena for over 70 years. It's very hard to hoe a political line which basically says, don't admit anything. So NASA starts out by saying there's no evidence of extraterrestrials and or aliens. And then it proceeds to outline the uh, rather interesting, you know, vanguard of a study, which at the end of that process, if they follow their own rules, will ultimately wind up with them having to change that initial take, that initial political statement. Because, of course, the evidence is all around us from all kinds of different sources, from incredibly credible military pilots with eyewitness reports to radar to all kinds of other, you know, digital media records, archives, film, eyewitness testimony going back, uh, you know, even before Roswell. So ultimately, NASA in this little dog and pony show game that they are playing dutifully to the Pentagon as a second as opposed to lead, they will ultimately, if they are honest, they will come to the conclusion that UAP exists. There are intelligent beings flitting around the Earth tonight whose destinations and origins we are uh, quite in the dark about because, again, just because someone says something doesn't mean that it's true. And just because an alien tells you something, to me, doesn't mean you should follow their lead and believe them without asking a lot of questions. So that's why many decades ago, I decided that UFOs, or the modern parlance UAPs, was almost a fruitless study. It was kind of pointless to get mired in all the soap opera and all the weird things that have been happening and, you know, the food fights and the recriminations 
you know, investigator against investigator, investigator against the government, the government against uh, flakes and crazies and all that. In other words, that to me looked even then, decades ago, like a bottomless pit, like a morass, like a, like a, well, I'll say it, like a cesspool. And nothing scientific could come out of this incredible, weird, you know, parlance of truth, lies, and videotape all meshed together. So I began to look at the possibility, after I was hit over the head with the Viking data on the face on Mars, I began to look at artifacts, at ruins, at architecture, at geometry, at mathematics, at the things that differentiate to any five-year-old a natural thing from an artificial thing. And I have said over the years that I will continue to do this because ruins stand still. And all you have to do is follow the current soap opera between disclosures and investigators with political agendas and agencies with agendas and the Pentagon with their agendas and NASA with a new agenda. And it's almost impossible to sort out, even with the best of intentions and the best process, the fake stuff from the real stuff. But as I've said over and over again, and we'll reiterate tonight, the thing that makes ancient E.T. ruins, starting with the moon and Mars and into the rest of the solar system, the thing that makes this different from the insane soap opera of ufology or UAPs or whatever, is that ruins stand still. And if you're really lucky, and in addition to ruins, you find a library, like scholars and archaeologists have for the last several centuries been looking in the Middle East or in the Mesoamerican jungles or anywhere on Earth for archaeology. They look for libraries because you can't have a current human-level civilization without writing things down for the next generation. In the midst of all that, when NASA dumped this uh, report on everyone uh, a couple, three days ago, when I went to page 33, I found, as Hitchcock would say, the MacGuffin. Because on page 33, this is written by the independent uh, study team that NASA, you know, contracted with a year ago, which came out this week with their final formal report. And I quote, Currently planned or existing NASA missions can widen their scope to including searching for extraterrestrial technosignatures in planetary atmospheres, on planetary surfaces, or in near-Earth space. These searches generally wouldn't require changes in hardware or data acquisition, but may simply require new directions in data analysis. Let me repeat that. May simply require new directions in data analysis. So, translated from Washingtonese into English, what does that mean? It means that technosignatures, that is, devices, artifacts, hardware, machines, computers, you know, lunches, anything left by an extraterrestrial could show up in a planetary search 
as a techno-signature. In other words, a an object, an artifact, uniquely only produced by a technological civilization, and in this case, by an extraterrestrial one. And they include on planetary surfaces. Well, think about it. If, as opposed to jumping into UFOs and things that go bump in the night and lights in the sky and cell phone videos and all the other crap that they're going to have to go through to try to find a signal, if NASA only looks at its own calibrated terabytes of images acquired over decades of the moons, Mars, moons of Saturn, moons of Jupiter, Mercury, clouds of Venus, everywhere we have sent spacecraft, or NASA has sent spacecraft, all across the solar system. If they simply develop a protocol to, with AI and machine learning, which of course can look through millions of images much quicker than a room full of human beings, if they simply program the right algorithms to look for geometry of artificiality on their own database, the dawning of a new age will come. Well, when Nelson announced at the press conference that NASA would be heavily using AI and machine learning, I knew that Something had been set up correctly to where now you need to merely in this new office, this UAP office at NASA headquarters, you merely need to fit in the data and out will come overwhelming evidence of an extraterrestrial civilization or maybe even more than one because what we're looking at, of course, seems to be different epochs who had different levels of technology and again, that will be available and readily uh, recognizable by uh, an AI or a machine learning program. All NASA has to do is to formally announce that this is what they're going to do in terms of searching their own database, and the game will be over. Because any true neutral AI program to look for the geometric signatures of artificiality amid the terabytes of photographic information that NASA has acquired all across the solar system in the last 50 years, all they have to do is publish that and then have it peer-reviewed by outside experts, outside AI, outside panels, and bingo, we will have one. However, there's a bit of a bureaucratic minefield between that goal and where we are tonight. So what we're going to do is we're going to introduce something totally brand new, totally off the wall. And to do that, I need to uh, kind of introduce one of our, our members, Robert Morningstar, because frankly, without Robert's asking what appeared to be a very, very simple question, we would not be having this show tonight. So let me do the setup, and then when we come back from the break, I'll give you, as Paul Harvey used to say, the rest of the story. Uh, I sent around a NASA document, a preliminary science report from Apollo 16, about two weeks ago. And I just linked to the uh, NASA site where all this literature is carefully stored 
and is uh, carefully archived. Um, when I sent it around, the one person who responded was um, was uh, Robert, and he said to me said to me very um, innocently, "Well, what is that thing on the cover? Why should I be looking at that?" And I hadn't really looked at the cover, so I did. And lo and behold, it turned out that it was a black and white image of what's called a thin section, which is a uh, slice of a rock. And we'll go through how this is all done when we come back from the break. But it was in black and white and not in color. And what's so interesting is that Robert, even in black and white, recognized there was something weird about it. And when we come back, I'll tell you what the weirdness was and what led to our incredible discovery and tonight's program. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, September 23rd, 2023. Two threes, two threes. Interesting. I hadn't noticed that before. Anyway, so um, Robert asked me this very simple question, and I gave him the standard NASA answer, which is that these were photographic, photographic, um, photogeological thin sections. When when geologists get rocks here on Earth or you go to the moon and you pick up rocks and bring them back, one of the ways they are analyzed 
In fact, if we go to the other side of midnight.com, we can actually see an item number four. I'll get back to three in a minute. Uh, what a thin section looks like. This is a meteorite being held in the gloved hands of a technician at NASA. And it was picked up somewhere, either in the Antarctic or maybe in, in the Sarah Desert, whatever. When these objects, these extraterrestrial messengers, are brought back to NASA by various teams, um, they are sliced with diamond saws into very, very, very thin sections. And then those thin sections, if they're thin enough, the minerals in the rock literally are transparent. They refract uh, light. They polarize light. We've talked about polarization a lot lately. And these are tools that we use on a microscope stage to look at the rock and to identify crystals and minerals and assemblages of minerals, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, I, I, I gave Robert the, the NASA answer. This is a black and white of a thin section of one of the Apollo 16 lunar rocks, which had been posted as part of the uh, cover of this report. And then I looked at it a little closer and I thought, wait a minute, that's the NASA answer. But what I was seeing, and I hadn't looked at it in years. In fact, I, I must confess, I never really looked at any of these thin sections because, you know, you've seen one stained glass window looking thin section crystal, you've seen them all or at least if you're not a geologist. They kind of all look alike. But I went looking for the color version of the cover of this Apollo 16 report, and it was very hard to find because they're, they're not labeled uh, very clearly. And I just grabbed another one by, by you know, random chance, and I brought it into, uh, you know, imaging programs, downloaded it, brought it in, looked at it, and went, oh, my God, because there, right in front of me, if I've been looking at any of these images from thin sections of the moon rocks brought back from Apollo, this game would have been over decades ago, because in those thin sections that I'm posting tonight, starting with item number five, and then six, seven, eight, uh, those, those, you know, five, six, seven, eight. Look at them. Look at them carefully. Take them into an imaging program. Look at them really carefully. They appear to be a cross section in a matrix of various stages of extraterrestrial machines. Some of them are fragments. Those would be bigger machines. Some of them have obviously been cut in two by the diamond saws used to cut apart the rock. Remember, these are rocks from Apollo 16 brought back by the Apollo 16 astronauts, John, uh, John Young, who was the commander of that mission. And they were sliced and analyzed in Houston at the Lunar Receiving Laboratory. Samples were sent all over the world to thousands of consulting scientists in laboratories and universities literally all around the planet, these, these samples were not kept quietly in Houston. So as I looked at the first color thin section, and I could see not only fragments of bigger machines, but what looked to be like little tiny nano machines, fully assembled nano technology obviously of an extraordinarily advanced culture, 
left in the regolith on the moon, smashed together. You're going to hear a term tonight called brescias. Brescias are most of what the moon rocks are composed of. What's a brescia? It's basically a smashed together rock created by the pressures of meteor impacts and shock waves uh, far away. And what it does is it smashes up the regolith, which is the lunar soil. It smashes pieces of other rock that has been fragmented by previous impacts together to create a new rock called a brescia. And most of the rocks that were picked up by the Apollo astronauts were these smashed together moon rocks created by older rocks which had been broken apart by endless millions if not billions of years of meteor impact on the airless lunar surface. So that's what we're looking at. We're looking at cross-sections of smashed up Brescia moon rocks brought back by the astronauts. And if you look very carefully at item number four, let me just make sure that I've got the right item up here. Okay. Item number four. Yep. Item number, I'm sorry, item number five. Yeah. Uh, that is what a thin section of these particular Apollo 16 moon rock, whose number I don't even have. This has been put together uh, so speedily in the last two weeks. Um, when you look at it in close-up, like if you look at item number six, which is a close-up of number five, you will see what appears to be incredible manufactured multi-dimensional geometry. Not once, not twice, but again and again and again all over the thin section covered. It's basically like, like a millimeter or less of actual moon rock as a thin section. So then you go to number seven. And there in the upper left-hand corner, you see a stunning uh, object, an artifact, something that does not belong in a vaporized or, or smashed together moon rock. In fact, at the bottom left, you can see one of these like rods, three-dimensional rods looking like some kind of framework. And you can see it trailing off against that white background, which appears to be a melted wire. You can see the wire actually trailing off. Why would it be melted? Because look at all the little white things all over the image. Those are objects cut in half by the diamond saw and the diamond saw creates heat of friction and so because it was somewhere between the saw and that little white oval the little wire literally melted from the friction of the saw and there you can see it well you can look at all the other examples we'll go through some of this in more detail as we go through our various uh, um, discussions with our panel members Tonight, we've got uh, John Brandenburg, who, of course, is a uh, nuclear plasma physicist. He has been involved in several major um, NASA efforts and DOD efforts, including the Clementine mission to send an unmanned uh, robotic spacecraft on a military mission back in 1992 to the moon. He has written, he was part of our independent Mars investigation. That's how John and I first met. Uh, I asked him way back when if certain craters on the moon could be the imprint of nuclear weaponry, you know, bombs and whatever, and what others might be 
caused by particle beams or lasers, and that was the beginning of an incredibly long and fruitful conversation and friendship stretching now over decades. So when I looked at all this, one of the first people I wanted to talk to about it was John Brandenburg. So without further ado, John, welcome to The Other Side of Midnight, and let's get right into what I wanted you to talk about, which is something very parallel to our discovery, which is Avi Loeb's uh, odyssey to the South Pacific and his discovery through magnetic raking at the bottom of the South Pacific Ocean, like, you know, two miles or something down, of objects, melted objects, which he analyzed in terms of their nuclear and chemical structure as being a very weird non-meteoritic assemblage of, um, of elements, which you don't normally see in solar system sampling from all over, including the moon, including meteorites, including earth rocks, etc., etc. So that was how we kind of began our conversation. It turns out that this week you have a scientific paper which has been published out of India addressing, in fact, this particular problem. So let's start there. How have you been following Loeb's expedition and what are your conclusions from what Loeb found? Because frankly, the title of tonight's show, The Abbey Loeb Challenge, we are challenging Dr. Loeb to apply the same technologies he's applied to what he found under the South Pacific to the lunar samples resident in Houston, about 840 pounds of rock and soil and regolith and finds, as they're called, if he applies even one thousandth of the diligence he has shown in his South Pacific expedition, we will have an answer within days. Are there, in fact, micro-machines and technological fragments immersed, embedded in the matrix of the Brescia moon rocks the Apollo astronauts returned over 50 years ago to Earth? John? Yes, yes. Uh, great pleasure and honor to be on your show, uh, Richard. And uh, yes, uh, I have been following Avi Loeb's um, uh, work uh, for several years now because he began with this uh, looking at this 10 to 1 length to width. Amuamua. Amuamua uh, that came cruising out of the sun. It approached from the sun side. And uh, he, he noted several things about it, that it was at the exact average velocity for the surrounding stars. So you couldn't figure out which way it came from, which star it came from. It came from the sun side. And then we only detected it once it had scooted past the Earth. And when they started interrogating it with laser uh, radar beams, it sped up <laughs> to get out of the solar system mm. and make get away. Uh, pretty suspicious, and he he immediately said this this was no asteroid and it was no comet. John, said, John, hang on, like hang on. An interstellar probe by somebody. Hang on, hang on. This was the this was the fall in October of I believe right. 2017. And now he has uh, very much been looking for other evidence that uh, we are being probed by. Um, people uh, in some interstellar power. And uh, he's found evidence of this in this meteor that came in or 
let's call it an well hang on let's jump ahead here i want to say on the record that on this show i was the first to ever say that a muamua was an interstellar intelligently designed craft that's and that's a very good thing that you said that and log followed that but he followed it looking for kind of current mainstream explanations i think now he's fastened on the idea it might be a solar sail and i think it's something much 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 more advanced uh, that, I, I think it was a much more advanced device and, um, uh, you know, a solar sail does not come in from interstellar space uh, like this thing did and leave. Well, what's really weird is it was like it was parked in the path of the solar system. So we walked up on it like it was not moving. And it, it, right. it was basically the encounter velocity of us orbiting the galaxy and it sitting almost motionless that resulted in the, in the velocities that were observed that made it clear it was an interstellar object, the first ever known. Yeah, that's, that's right. And uh, he's been um, attracted a great deal of hostility from the community because, you know, we've been the academic academia is dependent on grants from NASA and the uh, scientific uh, National Science Foundation, and they don't want any discussion of any extraterrestrials at all. <laughs> I'm sorry, they don't. Well, they will be over and, overwhelmed by by reality. Anyway, so yes. so Loeb yes. has been on this uh, kind of interesting mission, self-appointed. Yes. And, uh, he was threatened with being fired, even though he's a tenured, he was head of the department, and he says, good, fire me. I'm tired of doing all this paper, stupid paperwork as head of the department. <laughs> he couldn't be uh, He couldn't be actually fired from the university because he's got tenure. And uh, you also must realize that the uh, Israeli defense chief, you know, and he is Israeli, um, his uh, he grew up in Israel, and the defense chief, who is in charge of space, has said not only are there extraterrestrials out there, but the U.S. government has a treaty with them, a secret treaty of some sort, and um, I believe that was uh, said in 2014. You know what bothers me, John, is that someone of that caliber, with that position in the Israeli Defense Force, and given the amount of money we spend, you know, we send to Israel every year, it's yes. it's, it's 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 a huge political uh, impact on American politics. The fact that someone high up in the uh, Israeli government could say something like that, and nobody in the mainstream repeats it or asks him, "What the hell do you mean?" Is, I know is, it's it, it's 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 very frustrating because it's like there are certain things by agreement someone has decided we are not supposed to know, which goes back to artifacts because I find it yes. much easier to to unveil artifacts than it is ET encounters with UFOs, space people, spaceships, and all that. Remember, there's been this whole hue and cry now since that uh, congressional hearing a few weeks ago where one of the um, witnesses talked about alien spaceships the government has, our government, yes. and alien yes. bodies and all that. The difference between what we're announcing tonight and any of this other stuff is by law, the stuff we're announcing tonight must be available for independent scientific study. So if Abby Loeb wants to really go down in history as the guy who proved that we're not alone, 
There's 842 pounds of stuff sitting in Houston just waiting for him to knock on well, the door. Well, you know, the science fiction, you know, the a science fiction era scenario that extraterrestrials had bases on the moon appeared for the first time in uh, 1957 in the movie Mysterians, the same people who brought you the movie, the Godzilla movies. Hmm. You know, they had uh, they had UFO abductions of these uh, hot Japanese girls, <laughs> uh, and uh, that got everybody interested. And uh, they also had, uh, you know, alien bases on the moon, and finally one near Mount Fuji, which, uh, you know, caused a, a, a very serious reaction by the uh, world's powers. So are you saying that through their media, the Japanese were in on the secret and they were trying to kind of blow the it lid was, off? It's as, if, it's as if somebody gave them that script, um, uh, you know, out of Langley in in, um, in Virginia. I mean, we were, we were still heavily involved in the Japanese government in 1947. It was only a few years. Oh, yeah, of course. Two of course. years after... I mean uh, that, that. Well, this was 1957, so it was it was 12 years after. Uh, let's see, 57. Anyway, it was about, um, you know, 12 years after World War II was over. I mean, the ruins in Tokyo were still smoking, and uh, and the United States. So. Uh, basically advised the Japanese government on just about everything it did when they could use the bathroom. And, so so uh, you're, you're saying, we don't have a lot of time if you can only spend another yeah, 10 yeah, minutes I, with no, this. Let's just say that that idea has been around for a long time, along with UFO abductions and even animal mutilations that was in the thing uh, with James Arness, the original uh, 1955 mm -hmm. Um, E.T. movie, who you know, based on who goes there. So anyway, just to just to cut to the chase, the idea that uh, anybody bothering us or trying to investigate us would put up bases on the moon uh, is is a very standard science fiction scenario, which of course um, is could have been planted by the government. Who knows? And that if if there had been those sorts of structures on the moon and uh let's just say uh well everything on the moon is preserved the, the, you know the rocks are you know close to four billion years old four and a half billion years old um so well when you say preserve remember the there. operative process on the moon is smash and grab absolutely smash Wait. and grab i mean they they they're People are looking at the moon all the time and they find fireballs on the lunar surface from asteroid impacts all the time. I mean, asteroids don't burn up in the atmosphere. On the moon, it doesn't have one. So they just crash into the surface and they make these nice bright sparks. So, and there's micrometeor, for every meteorite you see, there's a, a million uh, specks of dust that crash into the moon. So even if you built a structure and then abandon it, it would get hammered to pieces in a million and years. And then the pieces are redistributed and redistributed oh, and redistributed. See, 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 see I, I keep kicking myself that I didn't think of this decades ago because I never imagined that the, that the temperatures and pressures would allow for actual individual pieces. And again, if you look at my samples, five, six, seven, mm -hmm. and eight, as we'll get to when we bring the other panelists on, 
There's, sure. There's tons of machine-like looking things. John, when you look at this, what do you yeah, think of? I know. Of? I've looked at them. Some of them look uh, quite uh, fascinating. They look like fragments of technology. I will freely say that. Okay. So, so for, for all right, but see, that's and it's still. Quite, it's quite, you know, it's, I mean, in my own science fiction novel about the collapse of the UFO cover-up, I had all these bases on the moon and uh, that they had, some of them had changed hands quite violently. Okay, for people that have no idea how we're going to go from presenting these images tonight to where we get real science, we need to walk through what Loeb did with his samples. Because what yes, he so, did after he... Hang on, let me, let me do the setup. Yeah, okay. After he published that Oumuamua was probably artificial, again, right. he's the second guy, I'm the first, and he came out with a whole bunch of evidence. We have totally different evidence, but it's so complimentary. He then turned his idea to our attention to UFOs or UAP, uh, well, so and the he actually an object that came in at interstellar velocities. Well, hang on, like, hang on, hang on. I haven't done with the setup. He okay. set up this thing at Harvard called Project Galileo, and he's been funded by DoD and NASA money. And he started looking at setting up like what Alan Hynek did decades ago um, from Northwestern. Uh, I'm sorry, no, 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 Northeastern. He, he, he would set up cameras. That was Project Galileo. And then he tripped over this 2014 Defense Department report. Because yep. remember, we have radar probing the solar system in all directions. Well, we have satellites watching. And we have satellites looking down at the Earth and all that. The DOD published in 1914, oh, 19, in 2014, that a meteor, an object obviously of interstellar origin, because it smacked into the Earth in excess of escape velocity from the sun at this distance, yes. had been tracked all the way through initial high altitudes down to the surface, and then it dunked itself in the ocean. So it's there was a disintegrated. Yes. So there was a pretty good area that Loeb got intrigued with because what he wanted to do was to somehow get money, get a submersible down to the ocean floor, drag you know kind of some kind of a sled around looking for fragments. Turns out that he was looking for magnetic fragments. So if you drag, very easy to collect stuff. That yeah, way. exactly. And when he brought it up, he had something so unusual in terms of elemental and isotopic content that he yeah. published all over the world in major media without waiting for peer review and papers and all that. That he'd found an interstellar artifact that had disintegrated in Earth's atmosphere, and he'd recovered some samples. That's yes, where that, I've analyzed it. That was no meteorite. Hang on. That's where the fun begins because just because something is from outer space doesn't make it extraterrestrial. Just because something is no. interstellar doesn't make it extraterrestrial, i.e. artificial. But you looked at the composition of yes. the objects that Loeb recovered and you have come to a startling, stunning amazing scientific conclusion have yes. at it okay well you the first thing you do is you look at the uh, they the, you look at the natural abundance of of stuff in the solar system and which matches the spectra of nearby stars so that's fairly standard uh, relative abundance of elements not the actual isotopes that's more detailed 
Um, but anyway, uh, you you look at that and you look at the meteorites that we find generally have that relative abundance of me of uh, of minerals of elements and this thing is completely alien. It looks, in fact, like melted aerospace alloy. It's got a lot of titanium and aluminum in it, and it's got iron because, of course, it was magnetic, so they picked up stuff that was magnetic. But it has almost no nickel in it. Nickel and iron are always associated in meteorites, uh, about to, you know, 10 to 1, you know, roughly 10% nickel for every... Uh, you know of the uh, of the iron nickel uh, arrangement. Okay, then you then you look even deeper. And you notice it's full of beryllium, lithium, uranium, and also that's thorium. a bizarre combo. Well, these there's, these are three very rare elements. One is very heavy. That's uranium, and then another. The other two are very very unfavored. The, the universe likes to make uh, helium from hydrogen, and then it skips over lithium and beryllium. It hardly makes any of that at all. Then it makes a lot of oxygen, carbon, and nitrogen. Uh, but so, but this thing is full of beryllium and lithium and uranium, three very rare elements, except if you have a melted thermonuclear weapon. Oh, my God. I know. Oh, my God, John. Wait, you mean someone sent us a nuke from interstellar yes. space? I mean, and it, it, it didn't go off? Yes. It, well, it, it obviously didn't go off, so it burned up in the atmosphere. It burned up in the atmosphere. Now, the, the, the best face you can put on this, the best, is that this was a failed Orion-type interstellar probe propelled, propelled by thermonuclear charges. Okay, hang on a sec. We're, we're obviously, Earth, we're, we're, up, we're up against, John, Earth. John, we're up against yeah. at the top of the hour, so I'm going to hold you over. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, you're on the other side of midnight. We're, we're, we're undergoing an extraordinary kind of blow-by-blow blow of what happened in back in 2014, which was years before Oumuamua showed up. Yes. You're on the other side of midnight. My first guest tonight, John Brandenburg. He will complete the story of why he thinks from Loeb's published materials assessment that what smacked into the Earth's atmosphere in excess of solar system escape velocity, meaning it came from beyond the solar system, was in fact a manufactured, recognizable thermonuclear device or weapon that miraculously when it hit the atmosphere didn't go off and it couldn't be from anybody here because it was moving faster than 30 miles per second you're on the other side of midnight my name is Richard C. Hoagland when we return John will complete the rest of the story
Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. Mm-hmm.